When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Knife Talk Podcast. I'm Marco Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts. I'm here with Jeff Fader of Fader Knives and Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. How are you guys doing? We got a very special episode today. Uh, but before we get to our very special and illustrious guests, let's let's jump into our week really quick. How's the last week been for you guys? How about you, Craig? You want to kick us kick us off? Same old, same old. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've just um, finished a huge batch of chef knives, hundred knives. So um, they're all smokes. going out this week. So I've been writing, you know, letter thank you letters with each of them to go out. So lots, lots, and lots of admin. But uh, nobody wants to know about my week. We've got a special guest this week. Special guest. Jeff, what about you? <laughs> no one gives a shit about me. Jason Knight's here. Let's talk about Jason yeah, Knight. Right. Let's get to Jason. What the fuck? Are you guys out of your minds? you think anybody gives a shit about what we're doing through the week? I'm Jason Knight here. I'm one of the original well, members of the Harleyville Short Bus Crew. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you guys probably all know Jason Knight. Possibly best from... Uh, seeing him on Forge of Fire. He's also uh, one of very few American bladesmith societies, master bladesmiths. What is it, Jason? Like 150 in the world right now or something like that? 120? I don't know. A bunch of them died just recently, I think. Okay. So, so the numbers are down. <laughs> numbers are down, but that's always good. It's one of the things where there's always better that there's Sorry. less of us. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. What a yeah. way to start so, a podcast. But we, uh, <laughs> I know him as, uh, you know, I first was introduced to Jason's work uh, probably about 10 years ago. I, I was introduced to his work through Adam DeRozier's, who's a badass bladesmith up in Alaska and a very good friend of Jason's. And uh, the first time I met Jason, actually, he was, uh, he was very kind and gentle and squeezed my butt. And we were friends ever <laughs> since then. And so, uh, but he's also, you know, he's got this beautifully produced uh, Forged series, which we'll definitely get into. Um, but it's an instructional series. Um, and he's got it at a very awesome and uh, reasonable sales price right now. But before we get into that. Let's just say hello to Jason Knight. Hi, Jason. How you doing, man? Hey, brother. How you doing? That's good. It's good to talk to you. It's good to see your face. Well, I guess nobody else can see his face, can <laughs> I can We're see on maps. Radio. I think I can see maps of where you are located. We're all located on maps. But um, but so, Jason, you've been, how long have you been making knives? How long? Like, how did you get into all this? Where did this all start? I've heard stories of you writing papers about Steve Schwarzer. You guys are close. <laughs> Let's hear about it. So, yeah, that's a good the question. The origin stories. The origin story, yes. Well, when I was a wee lad back in Narnia, or where now, <laughs> Harleyville, <laughs> I grew up in a, a swamp, literally a primeval swamp, a place called Bidler Forest. It was pretty close to my house. My cousins had a farm that backed right up to it. 
we would go deep in the swamp. We'd play in the woods. There were trees in there that are 1,500 years old, never been cut. And so I'm really being honest when I say a primeval forest. You know, it's never been logged. And we were always using knives that we found on the farm. I remember we found a box of like a bunch of K-bars and similar type knives in there. And so it was like, I just love knives. You know, I just love to um, have them and use them and put them to work out there in the, in the woods. And I was also interested in the knife makers, you know, the knife, make, the whole idea of it. Oh, man. Even before that, I would I would do I would try to do flint napping and I'd make knives out of copper or whatever. You know, I, a lot of kids were taking a grilled cheese sandwich and chewing it into a gun. I'd chew it into a knife shape. <laughs> so that was kind of me. But the first knives that I made that I thought were of any professional quality were in the early '90s. But the actual first knives I made were in 1980. Six and seven and 1988. I was 14 or 15 at the time, and um, so that's wow. where it started. And the so, first... is this all? Is this all you've ever done? Is make knives? Have you ever had a previous job? Any other profession at all? Well, yeah, I did uh, some other interim stuff, but I was always an artist. <laughs> so I, I worked at like a, I worked at a tire shop, um, tires and brakes, Gerald's Tires, actually an awesome place it's a family-run business and they they grow they started from nothing but i worked with them and that taught me how to work really i mean that that was the hardest job i ever had but i was there sometimes six days a week from seven to seven you know it was just it was in it's an important job too you don't think about it but i i think it's important that people have good quality gear on their vehicles so they don't fly off the road and die so i like that job but it was hard but i've done that and i worked at Lowe's and I sawed lumber. Um, I did all kind of crazy stuff. I worked for some friends of mine. Uh, it was also another fun job. But <laughs> they make knives, and that was more recent. But I worked on a. I did this crazy thing on History Channel too. That was that was probably the worst job I ever had. But that's another <laughs> subject. <laughs> but, you know, I, I made it bad, but. Anyway, but yeah, I, I professionally, I started making knives in 2001 mm. and I was doing the tire job and I told my boss, David, I was like, David, I'm going to go and learn how to forge and um, at this school out in Arkansas. So I did that and I came home and I kind of never went back. I just, mm. I just kept making knives, man. I, I did have a job for a limited time at a place called Middleton Place, which is the oldest landscape gardens in america and if you watch the mel gibson movie the patriot and a lot of those movies that are set in the revolutionary war era hope i said that right it's fine they they filmed parts of it there you know so but i was a blacksmith out there and that was fun hmm. so so nearly 20 years making knives have you seen a a shift in things i think particularly over the last sort of 10 years where oh, more man. and more people are making stuff you know is it become really obvious to you Oh yeah, it's that's always that's a real it's a it's fascinating to watch people come and watch people go and watch the trends. The trends, you know, there's there's classics that will always remain, but but the you know the trends are it's it's always interesting if you look at it on a chart. So a lot of people, of course, in the last I'm gonna say three years have really got into trying to do this, mm. and uh, most of them aren't doing it well. 
but <laughs> but that's why I want to help. You know, I want to yeah. help them. I want people to enjoy this as a a fine craft, and you know, and as far as I'm concerned, it is an art. I know it's not necessarily accepted as an art, but I, I think all of us would probably agree that it is a fine craft and an art in in many cases. But the, but just the process is an art. The process of making a blade, grinding a blade, forging a blade, machining a blade, all these really require, um, it, there's an art to it. And mm -hmm. we know this. And I want to promote it as such. Did I answer the question or did I yeah, skip it? Yeah, you sure it? did. <laughs> no, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I got to have you ask me one thing. I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of feeds, it sounds like it kind of feeds into your motto, be a maker, not a taker. Can you kind of expand on that? Kind of like yeah. yeah um so i dropped the not a taker part because it has okay. something to do i didn't know it had something to do with some kind of social movement i don't know what the hell some kind of thing i don't want to be part of you know i don't know what it is i i don't get involved in that kind of stuff i just want to inspire people to make hmm. so i started saying be right. a maker and then i just changed it to nightford studio yeah because i say i think saying Nightford Studio is way more positive to say not a taker. Yeah. Right? Right, right. So be a maker, and that means make a difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, like uh, we all can make a difference with just a word sometimes or just very simple, subtle actions that we might take on someone else's, you know, to, to better us first and then help better our you know, our family, our house, our neighborhood, our town, our, you know, that's how things really can work out to be better. So I just do it in my, my community. I'm, you know, I make stuff. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm probably newest to knife making out of, out of the four of us here on, on the call. Um, and, you know, it's sort of five, maybe six years now making knives. And what's really surprised me is the community and just how helpful everybody are. If you've got an issue, there's somebody that can help you out. And nobody's scared to sort of share secrets. There's, there's no secrets. Everybody's happy to to share their knowledge. And I think you're a perfect example of that, you know. You're, you're here to, to help others. And we've had some stories this week sent through to us of people who have met you and you've inspired them and you've helped them a lot. You know, you're not scared to, to share that knowledge, which I think is really unique as a profession, really. Well, thanks. I... Um, when I first started, there was this funny thing where people were like, oh, I can't tell you that. That's a secret. There's one maker. I, I'm not going to name his name because I, it's not necessary. But Rhymes with? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Rhymes don't with. do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> you could figure it out pretty easy, I think. So I would go to his shop. It was in the town next to me, which I won't say what that is because it will be easier to figure out. And he was a, he did some really cool stuff, and I liked big knives, and he made these big fighters, and they were just awesome looking, and he had these huge hollow grinds, and they were perfect, and I was like, man, this guy's close. I want to go. I want to see if I can go work with him. I was 16 or 17, um, and uh, I would – I would uh, he showed me stuff, and it was, it was helpful, but he was like uh, – I'd grind a knife, and he'd be like, wrong. I'd grind a knife. That's terrible. I grind a knife. That's no good. I get. I mean, like, oh, that was good. No, that sucks. You know, I was like, this was. They never even got heat treated. You know what I mean? They were just like, it's all trash. So, uh, needless to say, that's pretty discouraging. And I tended to not go there uh, a lot after that. And but this is a quick story on how I got my first grinder. I had a baiter 
BM2, you know, the old ones with the, everything was round. Yeah. So you could spend about an hour and a half adjusting it and getting the trick. <laughs> and then you could grind on it, you know, but they were primarily designed for hollow grinding, which is what I did back in the um, 80s and early 90s. And I still do now. I was like, I think it's the easiest way. <laughs> <laughs> no one's listening. Don't worry. Okay. But uh, I still, it looks beautiful. Uh, so the point is, what was I talking about? Okay. Point is, it was really difficult to learn there. So it discouraged me and I just kind of dropped it. But I learned how to carve wood. So I started carving wood. You know, I was like, oh, wood carving. This is, I could grind, I could grind all these things. And I would carve faces. And uh, I mean, I could get a, a image and a side view. I would do a lot of, um, like, I would try to do a lot of famous, uh, you know, Native American original people. Like I do like Geronimo or Sitting Bull. I try to carve those things in wood. Um, and, and I have some there. They look, I think they look good. I gave them, I gave them away at this point. I actually sold one, got it back. And then I gave it to a friend of mine, but that's what I did because I couldn't grind a knife and it was very frustrating. And then I ran into a guy named George Heron and he was probably one of the coolest, uh, knife makers ever. And also, uh, practical, a designer of knives, a user of knives, a Korean War combat veteran, you know, so if he made a knife, he knew how to use that knife. So if it was a skinning knife, he'd skin deer with it. If it was a fighting knife, he'd probably poke somebody with it, you know, so <laughs> he, it was no joke, you know, and if you see one of his fighters, and then there's another guy from the same era that's really, everybody loves his work. I don't think nobody loves him, but um, passed on, unfortunately, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Same thing with George. But one of these fighters is a weapon, and one of these fighters is like, oh, it looks cool, but it's kind of a clunker, but... So that's a side note. The point is, he said to me, he's like, you have to find your own way. This way may not be your way. This mm. this hologram, this way I'm making knives may not be your way. You know, he's like, you're more of an artist and you have ideas for things that require a bigger palette. And so that led me more into forging, but... <laughs> Am I just going on? I don't mean to no, go on around. No, 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 you're no, good. It's all, you know what? It's all good. I, if we can right. just back up just a hair, and th what it was interesting to me about what you're saying in regards to getting inspired at a young age and be and, and going to pe going to knife makers who might not have been as helpful as you wanted, I just interviewed Quentin Middleton, who his story and how he met you and how gr generous you were with him is really incredible, and I, I love the fact that it's almost like it was the antidote, the way you took on Quentin is like an antidote to your experience when you were a young knife maker. Yeah, he's, <laughs> I'm trying not to get all choked up talking about him. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. He's cool, mind. but Quentin is, Quentin is, uh, he's solid gold, man. He's pretty cool character. He's an incredible character. And he, I, uh, I talked to him for quite a while about it, but yeah, keep going. Did he tell you about the gold coins? No, go ahead. What? <laughs> yeah, what do you want from me? I tell you the truth. You didn't tell me anything. Go ahead. Tell the gold coins. So he was coming to my shop. He brought all these kung fu weapons, and I thought it was cool. Me and Adam was there for a while at the time. He was, I think he was visiting or lost or whatever. He's lived with us for on and off for <laughs> years before he, he married Haley. And, um, and then all of a sudden, Quinn comes to the shop. He's got chef stuff. He's like, God told me to make chef stuff. I'm like, that's cool. Make chef knives. So I, I had, I think I had two or three grinders set up then. And he was grinding the knives. And then one day I was like, man, do you have something like you could, he couldn't afford a grinder. And I understood that. I was like, can you just like 
you got some guns or something you could sell, you know? He lived in the country. I knew he had guns. I got a gold coin collection. I'm like, what? <laughs> because I was saving it, you know, as a legacy for my family. And I turned his hands over. I said, look at that. That's your legacy. Your hands right there. Go sell those coins and buy some grinders or never come back to my shop. I just gave him like a, I did one oh, hard wow. chopping once, just <laughs> boom. And I might have not yeah. said it, never come back, but he bought two Wilmot grinders from Chris and he was within six months. He had every, like you name a famous chef that was on chef that was on TV back then. He made Emerald Lagasse, Bobby Flay. He made all those guys knives and essentially just threw them at him, just gave them to him. Say, Hey, what do y'all think? And, he, and all the chefs in Charleston and Craig deal and Sean Brock, you know, he's, he's, Kind of our southern boy. He's a you know, he's famous. He made a lot of things really hot down in Charleston for his cooking scene goes. But Quinn just made knives and threw them at him and is like, "What do y'all think? How do I make them better? What do I do?" And uh, it was kind of cool because then we learned that a lot of chefs don't know anything about knives, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was great for him and it really launched him into like a real business, which is something I've been trying to make my knife into a business ever since then he did it within the first two years boom middleton made knives he literally had a business and i I love him i've loved to watch his you know his family his wife his kids you know he he got married he had all these these beautiful kids his brother um marcus is a pretty well-known barbecue chef and stuff so it's really cool their whole legacy the whole family you know it's really a great one well when i talk to him and we talked about you for a while. He told me that you saved his life. I don't know. He didn't tell me that. He told me. He told me that the direction that he was going down. He, you had, you had, you taken him in, and you were so generous that you had saved his life, and it, it really changed his whole pathway. Hmm. Wow. Intense. Yeah. It was super intense. He, like, he's, uh, you know, and and uh, know you've 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 done that to a lot of for a lot of people, and it, and it means something. Yeah, I try to make a difference, you know. That's the thing. Well, you did. And uh, he gives back a lot too. I, it's always it's always good to have a conversation with him. <laughs> so you're obviously a, a very strong early inspiration for Quentin. Who are some of your early inspiration? You've already talked about a couple of people you worked with, but um, you know, who are some other early inspirations? Who are some current inspirations when mm-hmm. you were first getting started and where you're at now? So that's a great question. Um, my one of my biggest inspirations was uh, Frank Frazetta. He's not a knife maker, but he's yeah. fantasy art painting. He really put the whole idea of fantasy art like boom. Here's just some lame stuff, lame, lame. All these years of lame art, and then Frazetta goes, "Here's some action and motion and death and curvy girls," you know. And he put it on there. It was awesome. All the, and, uh, all the best stuff. All the best stuff, yeah. So I like the style that he did. And as I began making knives, you know, I had no style. I I was just saying, like, I try and I was trying to make, you know, hollow ground, mirror polished drop point hunters, which was really difficult back then because uh, I didn't know how to grind. That's why it's, it's pretty simple. You got to do it to learn it. And then um, I had been writing about. Steve Schwarzer and Don Fogg and all these guys ever since I was a kid in high school because I had to write periodical reviews and stuff. So I was always writing about 
them. I remember writing one about Eric Callahan and David Bowie, not David Bowie, but Bowie, you know, the ultra, you know, that boy. Yeah. I don't know. And, um, B O Y E. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but so it, they inspired me really to make, you know, I'd watch, I'd look at the crazy steel Steve was making. I would look at the, all the stuff that Don, Don could make any kind of knife he wanted to. And like, nobody taught him. He just, oh, I just decided I was going to make a Pesh Cabez. And so I did. And there it right. is, you know, just crazy. So like, so they inspired me. They were like really big heroes to me as I begin to, to understand the whole dynamic of the process. But it's like, these guys are stock removal guys. These guys are bladesmiths, but they still got to do stock removal. So um, my influences were, I liked the ideas that I was seeing from these people. Uh, as far as style of knife goes, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you can see that. You see that cat? <laughs> no, no, he said to see the cat in front of the camera. It all went black for a second. <laughs> I knew he was going to do it. I knew it. He's, he's like, he's old. No, uh, go away. Uh, Hang on. You have got... Shelly, <laughs> you got to get Fuzzy Puckett. He's, yeah, get Fuzzy out of here, Sherry. Come on, man. It's an interview here. Sorry, baby, you got to oh, get him. <laughs> the dogs are really interested uh, in him now. They uh, love When they were little, they would play together, and they, the cat taught the dog how to sit on the back of the couch. And I was like, I got to get that thing. I don't know what it is, but it's fuzzy, and I like it, and I want to get it. So, anyway, so – Back to the story, right? <laughs> so I was inspired by their concepts and their ideas, and I would look at stuff, and it's kind of weird because I, 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 when I began forging, I was I was in there's another bladesmith named Jim Rodeball. Jay Hendrickson was the teacher of the class I was in in Old Washington, Arkansas, February, whatever, two thousand and one. He showed us how to light a fire, and he said there it was coal. He goes, "Okay, fellas, go at it." And, we forged knives. I forged like 40 knives in those two weeks. And I met a bunch of other crazy characters that, that week. But I was, I got to be friends with Jim Rodeball. I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but I'm going to get, I'm going to tie it all in. Okay. Do your thing. And I was drawing, I draw something. I go forge that thing I drew. He's like, how are you forging that? I'm like, I don't know. It's like clay, right? And then I, he would make them smooth. And I was like, how are you making it smooth? He's like, well, let me show you. So he showed me how to planish and, and make them smooth. And so we got to be friends, but that, that was probably one of the biggest things that helped me right there just to get going, you know, just to early on, it's like forging the shape and making stuff smooth. Grinding was easy for me. I, I, th I thought grinding was always easy because I've been doing it. You know, I've been, I've been grinding knives. I didn't make a lot of knives, but I did a lot more carvings and stuff with the grinder. So I just, the second I think about, Grinding a knife is carving. Boom, it was easy. I just translated instead of looking at someone else's knife like uh, George Heron or Don Fogg or any of these old masters. Um, I'm like, oh, gosh, I can never pull that finish off or that grind off. I would just think, oh, it's carving. And then it was easy. It opened the doorway for me to be able to grind whatever I want to. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. And so as I began to develop a style, I wasn't, I looked at knife makers. I loved all the knife makers work, you know, but I, I had to build that into something practical that I had a reference point to. So I also had some of my friends that I grew up with were from the Philippines. Um, so my buddy 
Robert, he came back and he had these two Filipino sisters, uh, Joyce and Michelle, which they, I don't know what they call themselves now, but they're, it's still Joyce and Michelle. And they're, so they were great. And, the, and they had all these different knives that they brought. And I had kukris. I really enjoyed, you know, I thought a kukri was just, a, just it, some of them weren't pretty, but they would cut so well. And I, I started to blend these concepts together. And I take my experience, you know, I hunted white-tailed deer and whatever, you know, birds and stuff like that out in the woods. So I would make hunting knives and I'd make bush chopping knives and I'd make all kinds of stuff. And every now and then I'd make a sword because <clears throat> I was fascinated by it and I wanted to know how it was done. But as far as style goes, I, I can't say this person influenced my style, but a lot of people influenced my work. Does that make sense? hundred mm, percent. Totally. Yeah. 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 So my style came from my dad had a 57 Chevy. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And it had all these rockets, and I thought they would really work as a rocket, but, you know, that was a story he told me. So <laughs> there's too much James Bond and sitting in a car jamming a gear around. And um, and I liked a lot of the, the curves on it, and I liked the curves that I would see in cars or in art or in those fish hooks from the Pacific Islands, you know, like the Maori style fish hooks and all the artwork. And so I wanted to find places on the knife that I could make like stops and starts that were flowing. They weren't like abrupt. So like when you look at something, you'd be like, eh, it was just like smooth. So that's a lot of how the style came out. And also the, the Frazetta art. But I still, I see knives now and I'll go, oh, I like that. I want to put that in my knife. So I do. Yeah, yeah. So I do steal things from other people's knives now. But I mean, that just shows you that, and this is something we talk to, you know, young knife makers ask us, they, they watch a couple of YouTube videos and they want to, you know, start to get involved in it. And there is, and you're the perfect example of making these small evolutions based on your style and the things that you like to do. And it's always these, there, it all comes from somewhere. And, and, and it's not just like, I saw this and now I'm going to make this. There are these slow evolutions to create something very sincere. Look at bugs. I always tell people to go look at insects, man. You find some crazy stuff on there to make knives from. I mean, it might be a fantasy knife, but it's to be cool. <laughs> Inspiration everywhere. Yeah. So, so let's fast forward sort of 15 years into your career because we, we've got a million and one questions which we'll get to from our listeners. They're, they've been kindly sending us questions all week. 15 or so years later, um, you pop up on TV everywhere as uh, in Forged in Fire as a judge. How did that happen? Mm. Okay, so um, there, I'm going to give you the backstory real quick. I did an interview with Blade Magazine, and I kind of spilled my guts. I told them the whole thing. But I'll tell you as fast as I can to make sense. Sure. All right, so um, back in 2010, we were looking for something fun to do at the, knife making hammer end, you know, that we had the cutting competitions and that was fun, but somebody thought that was too dangerous. So we couldn't do the cutting competition. So I was like, let's do a battle of the bladesmiths. But this was not my idea. This was my wife's idea. And there's a similar story. It's kind of funny how this similar story about this thing is. So Shelly was watching all the cooking shows back in 2009, 10, 11. And Iron Chef was one of them. And she goes, why don't you guys have a competition where you have unknown materials, a limited amount of time, and you compete, finish a knife. 
So she she coordinated this concept with, uh, I think it was Bill Wiggins, who we were running this, uh, it was American Bladesmith Society hammer in, in uh, Waynesville at the Clyde Community College. It was the, the, I think it was the spring or the fall hammer. Maybe it was the fall hammer. Yeah, it was the fall hammer. Yeah, because I broke my finger that year by sticking it in that damn rotary platen. But <laughs> so... So Battle of the Bladesmiths is how this thing started. And Battle of the Bladesmiths was, you know, blacksmithing in the, in the blacksmithing groups, uh, they always have a competition, um, like Eagle Eye or whatever it was. You got to see the thing, you got to make the thing, da 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 die. Those are fun. So this was just, uh, you know, based on Shelly's idea, what can we do? So I was like, well, we, we worked it out and it was I just want to make sure I've given my wife credit because it really was her concept. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we had four bladesmiths. It was me, Jim Rodebaugh, Burt Foster, and Russ Andrews. And they gave us a bar of steel, and they said, you can bring in two or three things in your bucket. So I brought, like, I had – see, I've been practicing this already. I knew what I was going to do. <laughs> so I brought some Edo wrap, and I had some leather – I don't know what else I had, whatever it was, but they, it was just like, you have to make a knife in two hours. I might have, it was two hours then. Hmm. So I made a big Brute de Forge recurve chopper, and then I put leather on, and I did an Edo wrap on the handle, and I, it was kind of, it was just some crazy stuff that I knew how to do in that amount of time. Now, somewhere along the way, one of the contestants, I think it was Russ Andrews, he was having a little bit of a trouble. <laughs> And you have to remember that everyone doesn't forge every day. Some people just forge, you know, whenever they forge, and that's fine. It's yeah. just we're all different, um, but we're all bladesmiths still. And so uh, we we extended the time because we really wanted everyone to have a finished knife at the end. So I think we extended it to about two and a half hours. So great. That gave me more time to go back and do something, whatever else I did. So I made that knife, and I don't remember what Bert made. I don't remember what Rotoball made, and I don't remember because I was being <laughs> selfish. I was focused. But that was the battle of the bladesmiths right there. I won, um, and then we did it every year for a while. And it was by popular vote. So the audience got to vote on who they liked the best and whose knife they liked the best. So I won. And nice. then the next two years, Bert won uh, by two votes, and that was because Tiger Lily and Tristan would vote for Bert. And, and I you're, not you're not better. You're not better. You don't carry right? this around with you. <laughs> no, I'm not better. No. So uh, that's a long story. Uh, but that's how it began. And then in 2014, some company called me up and they said, hey, we'd like to do a sword making competition where we have two, you know, knife makers. They didn't know what the hell it was. They, they just, whatever they said. And I was like, you know, there's like five people I know in the whole country that make swords. And my focus on swords at the time was making really ancient, like Gladius and ancient Greek swords. I, I was fascinated with those, Falcata, things like that. Um, I was like, I don't even know who you're going to find five people that can actually do it. And I was thinking about like real bladesmiths who can who really <laughs> knew you know i mean this this the whole thing inspired a whole generation of people to make so i'm not being a jerk about it i'm just saying i didn't know but what i did do 
maybe not so wisely was I just said, hey, this is the idea that we have. We did Battle of the Bladesmiths. Da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. And then they called me back and they said, well, what if we were going to have this somewhere? Where would we have it? Do you know a facility? Do you know a place? We've called these places. They don't want to do it. And I was like, man, my friend Dave Lish has got a school in, underneath the viaduct in Seattle. And it's really a neat place. And he's got enough space and we could do it there. So they called Dave. I get Dave in touch with him. And Dave develops a little further. And then all of a sudden, we're doing something called Forged in Fire. So... First competitors wow. were uh, David Goldberg. David Goldberg was a sword, you know, specifically swords. Uh, and I knew who he was. Matthew Parkinson, uh, he's a blacksmith and sword maker and knife maker. You know, he's from Connecticut. Connecticut. And I did not know who he was. And then another dude named um, Guy Harris, I did not know who he was. And then me. And, of course, I knew who I was. Um <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're having this battle of the placements. We have two hours. They give us this hockey puck sized piece of W two, and they go, "You got to make a blade in your style." Da, 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 you know, same old thing. But they gave us, I think they gave us three hours to forge it, keep true to fish. We had to put a hummone on it and all that. So what was funny, I remember from that part is they're like, "Can we weld handles on it to it?" And they were like, "No, tongs only." But anyway, to shorten the story up a bit, we made I made a chopper. I went on to the next round, of course, and somebody, I think David got out. And then we had the handle round, and then uh, I thought Matthew Parkinson would be going up against me to make a sword because he knows how to make swords. I was like, oh, this would be great. Uh, he had too many rules at the time. He did great, and it really made me sad that he didn't you know, get in there. So he, he goes out, and then it's me and Guy Harris, so we go back to our forge and i make a mains pattern gladius which is an actual you know specific thing that i spent 10 hours drawing and peter johnson later was like oh you should have just emailed me i was sitting with the pattern i was like oh, well i didn't know i had only a width measurement but so i made the sword out of damascus a guy made his sword out of carbon steel we go at some place in new jersey where Soundgarden had done some videos and stuff you know and i win forge and fire and I got the money then. I got to keep my knife and I got to keep my sword. So I won. Nice. I was the first competitor to win Fours and Fire. Hmm. No one will what, ever see that. What season were you in, uh, Morocco? Your, your first in, appearance. I was in the first season and uh, yeah, to make my gladius. episode was the Roman Gladius. Yeah. Nice, nice. Well, we've got a million and one questions from our listeners, but first of all, let's just listen to this. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat-treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! Evenheat-kiln.com. Head on over, head on over. I love that. <laughs> so the main part of the show is us each week trying to answer listener questions. Um, we certainly don't claim to be experts at all, but we, we have some fun with it, and it, it, it's always good to sort of interact with the community. So we've asked them specifically for questions for you this week. So this is a question we like to call, Hey, man, can I ask you a question? Hey, man, can I ask you a question? The first question is from Moonshine Metalworks. And he says, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given as a knife maker? 
You should join Forge and Fire. Uh, what's the word? Yeah, there you go. We want you to come on this show. <laughs> It'll be great. You'll be famous. <laughs> I think notorious is what you're talking about, actually. But, oh, uh, man, you know, the worst piece of advice was really uh, discouragement from certain makers to say, you just can't do this. For real. You just can't do this. This is just not what you're cut out to do. And that's a yeah, funny thing. Are you the thing. kind of person where that drives you even further? If somebody says you can't do it, yeah. does that make you want to dig your heels in and just, I'll show you? Yeah, it was really early on, and it it discouraged me for a while. But then I started to run into – the doors opened, you know what I mean? And I and I met I met encouraging makers like uh, George Heron and, and Don Fogg and Steve Schwarzer. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that is the worst advice I was ever given, is to quit. Yeah. Quit. Yeah. This ain't your thing. Yeah, and we, we talk about this quite regularly on the show, and I think people who tell you you can't do anything, I think, I mean, Jeff always talks about this, is basically what that means is they can't do it, so they don't think you can, you know? And it's it's, it's a cop-out. Or maybe they see and they know they can do it, but they're like, I don't want to have to deal with this person. Right. It's just, it's just yeah. negative. It's too, it's too negative. Yeah. Yeah. The next question comes from Kenzie Aaron. What would you be doing or making if you weren't making knives? Mm, well, I was working on this gravity condenser, but uh, it's really just for folding space and time travel. So <laughs> really difficult, uh, and I couldn't figure that out. So I just keep going back to knife making. That's a good answer. The best times we've had. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we've got an anonymous question. Um, what size hat do you wear? Because you seem to have a very large cranium. <laughs> and are you a Cro-Magnon? I, I am. Uh, I've been tested that it, I'm actually a Cro-Magnon. Um, I, I have an extra large head, but there is one friend of mine is a genius mad scientist inventor named, I'm not going to name his name, but he's very famous for a certain campaign a few years ago uh, and his head is like two fingers bigger than my his hat literally will sit on my head and i look like little buddy you know so <laughs> a bit I, watermelon yeah but like i got a pretty big head so if you want to send me a hat send me a large one <laughs> but if you want to send my buddy adam hat too bad and not adam de because he's got a little teeny head <laughs> i can tell because those those headphones are struggling the tension up here is crazy. They're like you can feel them kind of shaking. <laughs> nice. All right, this next one is from James Green. He says, "Hey, Jason, couldn't help but notice that your kids are well accomplished makers in their own right. I love the fact that it's a family thing. When did you start letting them tool around in the shop with you, and where did you start them off? Your wife is." also an artist too isn't she yes yeah, yeah she's a good artist she's actually doing she's oil painting now right. um so with tristan and tiger lily um tristan would actually i remember one day he was just hammering nails in the front of the shop he literally hammered like hundreds of nails every nail that there was he hammered them in the floor in the front of the shop and he would chop on stuff and one day I hear the press and the power hammer running, and I think he was about eight. 
I was like, oh, what wow. is going on in there? And I go in there and he's near, near, near. And I had a little, a 50 pound little giant. He's like, boop, boop, boop. I was like, what you doing, bud? And he goes, Oh, I'm making a sword out of this fence post. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, the chain link fence. It was the post. He's just, boop, 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 boop. he's flat. He's still got the sword. I was like, okay. Um, the hammer I think is sounds weird, but I think it's safer. So just don't use that press. Okay. Cause you're a little short for that, but you can use a hammer. He goes, okay, dad. And I just let him do it. I just let him go at it. <laughs> and uh, Tiger Lily would sit on the floor. I'd give her a piece of copper or um, bronze, and she'd just hammer on him. Boom, 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 boom. And then later, and they just got into it on their own, like really in their own time. Tristan would go with me. I used to teach classes for the American Bladesmith Society in North Carolina. So he would go with me, and this is kind of fun, because <laughs> he would make swords. He was like 12 at the time, and uh, he's not – I'm six feet tall. He's shorter than that. He might have been four feet tall at the time because he's only 12. So he's forging out a 30-inch blade sword, and it is like perfectly smooth with a very defined central, you know, diamond cross-section. It looks beautiful. Yeah. And uh, at first, I would, people were like, well, who is that kid? I was like, I don't know. He's always in here. Every time I come teach class, he must belong to somebody <laughs> around here. But later, you know, later on in the week, they figured out he was my kid. But he was forging in coal, and he just did it well. And he later on, he would make knives every now and then. But he's a he's an artist. You know, he's a freelance artist. He he was literally draw a dinosaur, but he wanted he didn't have a big enough piece of paper, so he literally drew it. You know, I would draw off the paper like this big. He just put a bunch of paper together to draw a big dinosaur the size of the living room. So free thinker, and that's an important thing when when we're making knives or making anything, just being able to break all those little barriers down. Like I said, I learned that grinding and carving were the same. So he went on to do um, brick masonry, CAD design, and he got a, a job working with my friend Mike Dubois, who's a blacksmith fabricator they do old school iron work and railings down in charleston and he's pretty much the most famous you know blacksmith in charleston now he wouldn't agree with me but tristan worked with him for a couple years until he moved up here and uh then he started doing uh uh you know he's forging and making knives and swords and doing folders and stuff too with uh, uh tri-cities knife works sometimes and in tiger lily she I'm trying to think. She started, it was, gosh, I cut my finger really bad one year with, she was making a knife and she goes, this one little part, dad, cause she's like a perfectionist. She didn't like this little thing. I was like, put it on the scotch bright wheel and I grabbed it and it just filleted my hand. You know, I was like, ah, she goes, well, that was your fault. <laughs> you did that. I didn't do that. I was like, okay. So that, I think she was 12 also 12 or yeah, she was 12. Took that knife to blade show and sold it to a friend of ours and sold it to another friend of ours. And I remember Adam DeRozier's was aggravated with her because he's like, I told you I wanted to buy that first knife. And, he, and you know, <laughs> it didn't work out. But she since has gotten back into it. Um, the DeRozier's visited us 2018. They came for Thanksgiving and um, her Tiger Lily and Haley made an integral in the shop and she just started doing it like doing it again and again and again. So she's been making knives now pretty solid for the last two years, primarily integrals, which got me yeah. back into making integrals. I did some early 
early on and then I did a, I do them every now and then and uh but I like I like making them you know that's kind of my favorite thing to make now too I got a question back back from what you were saying in terms of I mean one of the things especially in your forge series you you're very much along the lines of that you should you know don't be so uh, when when it comes to the design you should allow yourself to be a little bit more free and artistic and talking about your uh, your creativity and your son making a big paper with the dinosaur and and not being compelled to these rules how do you take that and kind of contrast it with being a a, a judge uh, for the master uh, for the ABS, I mean, when you when you're judging people for master bladesmiths, and you see these people, there seems as though that there are such uh, very strict rules and guidelines. How do you kind of handle both of those together? That free thinking versus the very tight, you know, decision making. Uh, well, that's a that's a good question, and here's why. One way is when you like that test specifically. Um, What is required is clean. Are we still on? Yeah, of course. Oh, yes. 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 We're on okay, here. So, um, Captivating. I'm sorry. So with that, let's talk about that test real specifically and how it is just the beat. Let me just say what it is. Go ahead. When I did it, um, here's what I believed. I believe that my knives had to be perfect without flaw. They had to be straight, perfect grinds, perfect finishes, perfect fits. And and good designs. I thought even the, you know, I believe that. So that's what I made for my test knives. Um, and then later on, and I and I, you know, I passed. And uh, later on, as they asked me to come and judge for masters or journey, or journeymen, I was looking for. I was looking at design, which I think is a part of it, but. What is more focused still? Because I quit. I don't. I don't do it anymore. I, I actually asked to not be asked to do it, um, and that's another subject. But I don't know if I want to talk about it. But <laughs> so the the point is, the knives are supposed to be. It's like the fit and finish is perfect. I tested one person's work who had. I tested a lot of them who were just ugly knives. Just gross knives uh, i'm not gonna say who they were that's not right but the knives were mm. just to me like Ugh. but the fit and the finishes and the proportions were there were uh what was required you know and i've failed a lot of people actually i i've failed more people than i passed as a judge for the you know and in, in judging journeymen and masters and i failed them because of bad fits and finishes, bad grinds, people who should have known better but didn't. I have to tell you, I have to make a confession. Go uh, ahead. One of, so Go my ahead. friend Andrew Mears, who is one of my favorite, favorite knife makers, like if you had to say who's your one of your favorite modern makers, Mears. Andrew Mears is one of the most amazing knife makers that there is. And I, and I love his work, and, I, and he's a great mind. And when he presented his knives for Journeyman Smith, I was judging. Excuse me? I couldn't hear you. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> but what happened? But he had, like, things he presented. He goes, well, I thought that's what they wanted to see. And he had other, other knives on his table. It's like, whoa, you're that guy. You're the guy making that crazy stuff that I've been following. I didn't know. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure him out because he don't talk that much, you know. But um, 
but he passed anyway. Good. It was good. He passed. Cause you have to have, there's usually there's six judges, three, three, or, or if there's more makers, then there's going to be more judges usually, but three will pass and three will fail. And then you have to have a tiebreaker. And I was the only guy that said no, because this, 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 and this. Well, mm. it, that's the thing that you have to overcome. And I'll explain that in the next part. But I've failed people who I thought were better, but they presented like a bunch of stuff they borrowed. And it really pissed me off because I'm like, you're supposed to be better than this. Why are you presenting this stuff? And 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 of not so good design. Um, mm. But when you but when people present their work, I'll use uh, like Kyle Royer and Adam DeRoses. They presented knives for their, I say, master's thesis. And they were perfect knives. They were beautiful knives. They were great designs. They exemplified the maker's art and the work and the style. Uh, you know, uh, like Kyle made this quantum Damascus and in, in engraving, it was just beautiful. He had killer ivory um, on his dagger and an Adam made this dagger that made me think, man, you could stab somebody in the eye with that. It could drop on the ground. You could pick it back up and do it again. Now, I was careful on that judging because Adam's my, you know, he's my brother. So I let everybody else judge first, and the, the decision was unanimous, and I was just like, passed. Mm. You know, I looked at everything, and I look at close, and I'm ter- You know, I'm like, I'm that I'm that judge you don't want to have in that room, to, just to be honest. But I don't. Well, we don't but worry about that anymore. Yeah, and uh, and some people just present crap that they borrow, and they don't pass, and they get pissed off, and they bitch about it and complain about oh, I didn't pass, blah, 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 blah. So these are never you made five years ago. You just, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like to see like in that test, like, uh, I like stag. I think it's very cool and very artistic, but I don't want to see that on test knives because it doesn't exemplify the maker's art. And one year for journeyman, I used Sam Lurkwin's knife as an example. Sam Lurkwin had this artistic, beautiful knife it was all him. Sorry. It was all him. It was his design. It was his shaping. He shaped the handle. He shaped the wood, shaped the guard, shaped the blade. Then I'm always beautiful now. Another candidate was someone who had actually, this is funny. They had, there were six judges and four of us had failed him. <laughs> so he failed. And one of the judges who passed him put it up there for, this is the George Peck Award knife. Now it's the, it's the um, I don't know what the it audience. is. Whatever it is. But the guy failed, but one of the judges was putting it up as the best knife, you know, submitted by a journeyman Smith applicant. And I was like, this knife failed. (laughs) So I have different things when I think about that artistic thing. So like I look at Sam's knife, very artistic. I look at the other knife, could be artistic in another context. Um, Now, when it comes to that freedom, once you, you know, this is the thing, you do it, you don't do it. You do it for you. You know, the whole thing is you do it for you. Uh, If you pass your Master Smith rating, that just means you have the basics down and now just do whatever you want to. And don't go around and go, well, I'm going to buy a plate. Don't go around telling people. (laughs) Nobody gives a damn. No, I put MS on my knives. People say, why you put Master Sciences on there? That's weird. So I, I don't do it. I just put my mark on there. I just put, you know, I was like, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a a master of that, and I'm trying to inspire people. And 
I, I want people to be great, and I, and that's a good challenge. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good thing if you want it. You do it because you want to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't do it. It doesn't make you. You don't get more money for your knives. It doesn't make you more renowned. I mean, I don't know half the people on there. To be honest, I, I don't know them. They're, if I know the makers who are noteworthy, and so do you. Mm. And, so you're always looking for like individuality and people to put their own expression into a knife, not necessarily just the fit and finish. Oh yeah, I don't care about fit and finish anymore. That's one of those things. I'm like, eh. You know, there's more important yeah. things on a knife. There's, I mean, there's more. You look at something, go, oh man, I'm, I'm intrigued. You know, I start looking deeper mm. and deeper, and I'm like, ooh, especially if you leave forging or texture on it. You know, or it, 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 there's a lot of soul in those knives, and and I don't mean, you know, you know, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You're makers, so you understand the dynamic of this thing. I'm looking for that, that fire that you put in there that ah that's me you know mm-hmm. i mean yeah. passion yeah. won't get you anywhere you can have it's like a potential passion these don't get you anywhere you got to put some transmission on that ass you know so <laughs> <laughs> then you can do something with it. you got then you got some torque you know as, as neil would say torque so um i i love when i see a new maker challenge themselves to do something crazy and they pull it off and the knife is sharp. It is beautiful. The fit and finish is eh. And that's more important to me than someone who shows me a perfectly clean, sterile, boring ass knife. You know, like, mm-hmm. wow, that is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that's down over there. Next yeah, I just, it, yeah, I don't care about that. I mean, it's sure. it's a cool thing. And yeah, you do it. You you learn how to do it. It's a technique. It's just one technique. Mm. Really, it's just yeah. fit and finish is one technique. But but putting that... So I'm going to ask a question back. Uh, chef's knives to me are one of the greatest platforms we have to exemplify our art because it is a it is a series of knives that they must work mm. if they don't work then well dinner has to work dinner's not going to be good dinner's not going to be good and <laughs> and then you can but you can add all kind of style to that knife you know obviously uh and you can have all kind of fun with it but it's still it has to have like a couple basic principles of function and then work. So if somebody makes a Bowie knife, what the hell is that for? You know, I want to make a David Bowie knife. I don't want to make a, a Jim <laughs> Bowie knife. You know what I mean? I want to do a David. Like I want to be like awesome, you know, rock star looking thing, something crazy. But those are knives that have no, I mean, we can fantasize, about, but a Bowie knife, I'm, I know I'm going to get in trouble for it, but it's a fantasy knife. And it's a fun fantasy knife to to have as a platform for doing your art on, but a chef's knife to me is is the ultimate because first of all you have to overcome the practical ability the knife must cut. Mm-hmm. Now what's the knife must be comfortable. It must have the right edge geometry, the right edge profile. Now you build on these couple of principles, and now now you can do what you want to do to it. Really, if you once you've mastered those, don't you? Does that make sense, y'all? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, everybody uses a chef knife multiple times a day. It's it, you know, it's the perfect working knife. It's been it's been put to work multiple times a day by 
90% of the people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another one from Tim Landini. And all of these names, they're all their Instagram handles. That's how we get the questions. So if you've got a question... Contact us via DM at Knife Talk on Instagram. It's that easy. So Tim Landini has done exactly that. And he says, I've never done the Brute de Forge finish before. Does the scale come from simply the forging... Or does the scale appear after the quench, he's asking? Uh, it appears after you quench it in dragon's blood. <laughs> but that's not the truth. Uh, and only Welsh dragons, too. <laughs> that's only right. Welsh only dragons. Welsh dragons. Yeah, so, um, to answer your question, actually, uh, high-carbon steel forms these little surface decarburizations, and that is scale. So, the you know, all that stuff, that's the stuff that pops off goes in your shirt, hits you in the eye, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it forms while you are forging it, while you're heating it and uh, coercing it into shape, not beating it, bamming it. You're, you're, you're um, massaging it into a knife shape. Is that a good answer? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Can but I- you can get it off. You can, the easy way to get it off so it's not falling off in your food is uh, if you want to leave the brute to force scales, just soak it in vinegar for 24 hours, and it will literally wash off. Can, at, th- at this point, I just want to mention that you have an online series that you just—it's called Forged, and it, I just watched it, and, and I was so amazed at the how easy it was to watch, to all the information. I loved all your takes on things, and how you make the, the elemental knife. And I just wanted to say that at, it's not discounted for right now for 50 bucks. And it is beyond wow. worth it. Beyond worth it. And I was surprised at how much, how easy it was. Like I said, easy it was to understand and how well produced it was. Thank you. It was a, it was, uh, a lot of work. It was a lot. It could seem like it was a lot of work. Yeah. And I thought I, I had... You know, we have high hopes and low expectations. So we actually filmed that a year ago. And we started filming in the end of September, beginning of October. And um, I think we we had it produced by the end of October. And it's just now got paid for. So that's why I'm able to make it $50 because I want everybody to get it. And I want everybody, I want people to look at it and be entertained, but be enlightened too. So I get questions. It's like, I don't make knives. Uh, will this benefit me? I was like, yeah. I mean, if you like it, if you like the subject, you'll watch it and then you'll have a better appreciation for the stuff that we make, you know, for the stuff that all of us make. So it, it just gives the people who, if you make, great, it'll, it's going to help you. If you don't have a power hammer, great, it'll help you because you can see the dynamic of how the steel will move. Uh, or you can see how to shape a handle or why to shape a handle that way or why use certain materials and why to make it simple and why to build a process of, you know, one, two, three, this is simple and build on those things. And I hope that I want to see people develop their own versions of these things because I will do that, what I call the jikin do of knife making. Adam DeRozier's called it that. But I'll, if I see something you do or you – Take something I did and you share it back to me. And I was like, oh, I like that better. I'm going to use it. 
and I'll try and I'll give you credit. I mean, I, I don't mind. I'm happy to give credit where credit is due always. So thank you for bringing that up. And it is a work that I want people to to go out there and make. I want them to see simple ways that are direct ways to be able to make the things they're imagining. Um, and I want people to watch it and be entertained and enjoy the whole process. Well, one of the things that I noticed was that you have a lot of uh, ex new expressions that I hadn't heard about that I really loved, like the concept of mass effect. Uh, you ref when you talk, you break everything down in, in big groups. Like when you're talking about heat treating, you call it the heat treating umbrella. I loved how you kind of compartmentalized everything. You made everything straightforward, including the way you finish your choppers. Uh, I also liked. I also liked in the beginning. One of the things I loved is how you talk about the how why your handle is the way it is, and every different part, including why you don't have a ricasso on your knife, or why you don't have. And I don't want to give too much away. I would rather people go to uh, nightforgestudios.com, put in promo code forged, the number one, and then the word four, and then the number fifty. Get yourself that. Get yourself that course for fifty bucks is definitely worth it. One of the things that I loved is when in the beginning you were talking about the difference between nerd talk and geek talk you think you can you think you can because when i first thought i was just like well sounds the same but you clearly made a difference um the first time i heard this i think me adam de rogers and kevin cashman were talking and somebody i heard somebody said a bunch of nerds talking and kevin's <laughs> wife said no a bunch of geeks talking is there a big difference and i was like that's right <laughs> Nerds are people who are sitting back, you know, the trolling. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you should do this. They're idealistic um, fools. Is that too harsh to say? No. But a geek is someone who is like, I'm doing this. I'm learning this. I'm trying this. I'm experimenting with this. I want to make it better. I want to do more. You know, you playing guitar or shooting guns or making knives or building, whatever you're doing, if you're engaged in the process – then, uh, well, that's that's the geek talk part of it. But that's a good thing. That's a that's kind of an honor to be called that instead of the other part because um, that's where that's one of the things I think about. You know, the nerd talk is you didn't do it, you don't know anything about it, you just read about it in an idealistic viewpoint. You know, I I know that you can make a sword out of um, elevator cable and it will cut an engine block in half. Mm -hmm. It's Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah, that's right. But uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe you can. <laughs> I've never seen it done. But uh, it, it, I, I don't know. It could be possible. But it's just talk. It's just talk. Yeah. And what we're and geeks want to do the work. They want to learn more. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I get that the difference. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. My dog is, that's my dog freaking out. She's chewing on the door handle. What's wrong with her? She's just going crazy. And the other dog is just calm and cool, like, thanks for letting her out. She's going crazy. Well, we're 146 shows into this podcast now. That's um, cool. And we've got bored after some time. We've got bored of talking about knives. So what we try to do in the middle of each show is just talk about something else very, very quickly. Yeah. Which brings us very nicely to... Let's get quizzical. Our quizzes. Mm. These have become very good. And we, we've got a problem with last week's quiz. So we did a quiz last week. 
uh, between Jeff and Morocco. Morocco won by a single point. Um, but my wife was listening back to the show. Morocco, you had one wrong. We gave you we gave you a point. Well, it's we, not my we, fault. We need to take the point off you. Um, so we asked it? you. It is we Craig's asked you um, for a member of no a member of Paw Patrol, and you said a scout. He's not a member of Paw Patrol. I think you meant Tracker. So you, we take a point back off you. Craig, I, I think they might this have different bullshit. names in the UK versus the United States. No, 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 no. We, we've, we've, we've Wikipedia'd it. We, we know the answer. Wait, you can wrong. I Wikipedia this? Can I use my phone? <laughs> <laughs> so right. last week, they, it, basically, it was a draw. It goes back to Morocco and Jeff a draw. We need a winner. So very, very quickly, first person to shout the correct answer of eight times seven minus five. Oh, Jesus. 51. 51. Jeff wins. Oh, my Jeff God. Wins. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the things I don't uh, have. Is me neither. <laughs> I got lucky, man. I got real lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Exhausted. So, our standard quiz, Jason, and I think you should be involved in this as well. It's one minute of general knowledge questions. You can say past, move on to the next one if you like. It's a very high-pressure situation. Okay. So, so at the moment, Jeff is 1-0 up after um, Morocco cheated last oh, week. God. You, Craig, this is your fault. This <laughs> is your hey, fault. I cheat. I play, if we play Risk or Hide and Seek, I cheat. <laughs> Cheating's cheating fine if you can get away with that. But not when my wife listens to the show because she'll, mm. she'll catch you out. So, Jeff, as you're the winner, you're going to go first. Are you oh, ready? Yeah, I guess. Same rules as last okay. week. Say um, a point for every correct answer. You can pass. Okay. Get as many as you okay. can in a I'm minute. You. Are you All ready? Time. T minus one minute. Greens, fairways, and bunkers are part of the setting for which sport? Golf. What is Taylor Swift's latest album called? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> which Olympic sport takes place in a velodrome? No idea. Prior to joining the Euro, what was the currency of Spain? Peso. Fuck. <laughs> R.I. are the initials of which Rhode American Island. state? In what year did the Beatles split up? Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. 79. Calcio is the Italian word for which sport? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> true or false the capital of Libya is Benghazi Ten, yes nine, no Tripoli seven, in terms of area what's the largest five, country in South four, Bra- America who fuck cares I've had it with this two, quiz I have no idea one. no idea <laughs> god Jeffrey that was just that was that terrible. was terrible do you know how many you no, have no three two in a whole minute you had two two correct two I only had two <laughs> well, I figured the Tripoli thing would came later. I didn't really. I like your laissez-faire uh, answers. Yeah. Well, you know that's how you <laughs> yeah. gotta be. You gotta, you gotta be a little bit cool about it, right? You know. Ah, oh, do I care? Quite a few fuck knows <laughs> in there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you gotta have a little bit. You know. Morocco, you're up. Are you ready? Yeah, of course, you got ready. T minus one minute. Freestyle and Greco-Roman are disciplines of which Res- Olympic sport? Wrestling. Correct. Which of tennis is four major championships is played on clay? Pass. Which European capital city is known as the native language in, in its own native language is Praha? T minus 40 seconds. Pass. In what US state is the city of Nashville? Tennessee. 
How many keys are there on a piano? T-minus 82. In what part of the body would you find the fibula? The leg. Nice. The tombstone pile driver is a finisher made famous by which iconic wrestler? Damn. <laughs> what percentage of the Earth's surface is made up of the Atlantic Ocean? 10, 9, 40. 8, 7. Which actor feels the need, the need for speed in Top Gun? Tom Cruise. That was good. You asked some easier questions. Yeah, you asked way easier. I I would have only gotten two in the first round, too. It's fine. It's fine. These all random. All random. Mareko, you've scored a massive five points. That's probably the highest in the since we've been. The highest we've had. The highest we've had. Wow. Jason, are you ready? I think so. No, no pressure. I'm ready. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. T-minus one minute. What colour are most buses in London? Red. What is the first line of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody? I see a little... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Silhouette of a man. (laughs) What iconic weapon does the bride use in Kill Bill? A Hansel sword. (laughs) What? There you got it. Botany is the study of what life form? What is the largest animal on the planet? On the planet is an elephant. On the water is a blue whale. (laughs) What is... Who is next in line for the British throne after Queen Elizabeth? (laughs) What colour shirt is Walt wearing in the iconic desert scene from where he's pointing a gun and wearing his pants? Uh, Blue. No. I don't know. Who sung Tiny Dancer? Uh, Elm John. Correct. I have so, one. Before you say anything. Yes. You buzzed him wrong on one of them. And it was, you were incorrect. When he said the Hanzo sword, that's good enough for me. Well, again, Wikipedia tells me fuck. it's a katana. I watched, I of course yeah, it's but a it katana. Was made by, of co- it was made by Hattori Hanzo in the movie, Kill Bill. Okay. Okay, we'll amend that. Jeez. <laughs> That was some bullshit. That that buzzer. Yeah, there you go. Adam. Adam. Thanks for looking out, brother. Of course. Come on. What's right is right. Okay, we we've got a, a last place goes to Thank Jeff. You. Simply for back chatting the host. You don't do that. <laughs> Fine, no problem. No problem. The <laughs> Second place with four points is Mr. Jason Knight. What? And Morocco. You get back to your point again. You you had five points. Look at all them brains. Look at that. Congratulations. I, I feel like Jason gets an extra bonus point for I... the poorly worded question about largest animals on the planet. And maybe a point Wait. for singing the well the wrong first words to Bohemian Rhapsody, but we <laughs> we got some lyrics out to you at least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, so that's, that's our fun. quiz. Those are fun things to do. I I did a podcast <laughs> the other night. Um and this kid, it's like a local thing. And he goes, well, it's, I think it's called something Whiskey Sessions. This guy's 23 years old. And we go to a distillery. And he, and he goes, do you want samples or you want full shots? And he goes, we'll take full shots. I'm like, okay. So six of them. And there's rum and vodka and two whiskeys. And we get to number three. And I'm like, how you doing? He goes, I'm drunk, bro. <laughs> I'm like, well, you, you got three more to go. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but by the time we were done, he was, um, he came up with a word. I think he said 
charged. He made up a word for being drunk, (laughs) but it was it was funny. So maybe you need to do a bit more of that on this podcast. Maybe slunched, clunked, clunked. It sounds like some of a Rick and Morty. He was clunked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of podcasts, Jason, you you have a podcast yourself, don't you? I have a podcast. Um, it's it's not as professionally produced as this one is, but I'm working on it because I'm only uh, 347 in. How many am I in? Okay, nine. So. <laughs> good job. We did not do the mask. Yeah, the math question is I don't do so good. <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm working on some guests. I'm, I'm trying to start setting up guests, and um, I. We usually do it somewhere. We've been doing it at Cumberland. We're kind of working on a place to have it in with camera angles. And I always tell people, it's like my podcast is like a cross between. I want it to be. It's not like that. It's just like a a boring ass podcast right now. But I'm working on it. My guests are great. Um, I want it to be like a cross between Coast to Coast AM and Joe Rogan's show. But Dude, we sometimes talk about knives. You're an Art Bell fan. I like all that stuff, man. It's fun. That's why I normally ask people, the first question I ask people when they come on, I was like, so, um, can you tell me about the weirdest thing you've seen in the sky or paranormal <laughs> experience you've had? And they normally go off or say, nope, nothing. Okay, well, we'll skip that. Coast it's always to, fun. Coast to Coast was a great radio show. I don't know if it's still on, but when I was a kid, it's it was usually on super late at night. And when I was listening to it as a kid, it scared the shit out of me. And it was by Art Bell. And it was the first time they were talking about Black Hawk, black helicopters and aliens and abductions. And it was always this very, very uh, – he had – Art Bell did such a great job captivating the audience and creating something that was like – to me as a young kid who should have been asleep, it was terrifying. But yeah, it was like man. this awesome, awesome radio. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Next, we're we talking about the deepest hole ever drilled. I love it. Here's a sample sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, God, what's going on? I don't know if I want to listen to it. When I was 30, so uh, my wife was pregnant with Tiger Lily the first time I found it. And I was just like, I don't know if I should listen to that. It's going to freak me out. I'm not going to sleep. Yeah, (laughs) pretty cool. Art, Art, I'm behind, the, I'm behind these razor wires, and I can see all these soldiers. We're moving around, and I don't Black Hawk helicopters. It was always so great. It was oh man, so great. And then uh, <laughs> I got there's this friend of mine named Kenny, and he shows me these funny clips, and I can't. Some comedian, he's friends with Joe Rogan, and he does impersonations of like Jesse the Body Ventura or um, what's the guy's name. Trying to think, conspiracy radio guy. Oh, uh, Alex Jones. Alex Jones, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Kenny calls me up and he goes, "Hey man, uh, I'm at my grandparents' house." I'm like, "Everything okay?" He goes, "Yeah, well, I got to tell you something." What? We're making the frogs gay, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and then he and he's talking about this crazy interview that this comedian was doing, and he was just copying those guys, and I was like, "That's." What are you talking about? Yeah. And I thought it was some serious, somber moment. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's funny. So let, let's get back to some of the questions we've had from people. Um, uh, who we got here? Uh, I got, Dave Weiss oh, yeah, asked, 
Dear, very formal. Dear Mr. Knight, you're famous for your cookeries. Why are you so fond of this style of knives, he asks. Mm. Well, ah, that's a good question. Um, I, I found one in this toolbox, and my cousin found K-bars and stuff, and nobody wanted to touch it because it was ugly and rusty. So I liked it, and it just cut good. And I did research on this knife, and I found out that it was attributed to the Gurkhas, who were conscripts, or, you know, they were soldiers in the British military, and they were just ferocious, smiley fellows who took tea breaks um, before they'd go out and terrorize the Turks during World War II. On the, on the front lines, and it fascinated me. And uh, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He, I don't know how long he was over there, but it was he was enlisted before the war started. And um, he, I think he came home in 42 or something, so he was there for a long time. And he had been detached with several British units because there was no one else for him to be with. So he started out down in Swaziland in Africa, and he ended up in North Africa and then all over the place. And uh, when my grandmother met him, he had a, a British accent. She thought he was from England, but he was from Harleyville. <laughs> but he worked with all these different people, and you know, I didn't, I don't remember having conversations with him, but it's like one of these things. I just was fascinated with the subject, something I tied back to, and I liked it. I, I cut with them. It was kind of one of the first knives I tried to start making. I'd cut them out of saw blades, and I didn't know how to heat treat. That was like the mystery. The heat treating umbrella was completely uh, a coast-to-coast AM subject at the time. <laughs> it was totally conspiracy, man. And um, so that's what just fascinated me, and I always liked it. When I figured out how to make them, they cut, and then I started to add my own little flair to it, little subtleties. And I made it my own, and I just like it. It cut great, and it's a yeah. versatile tool. It's not just a, it's not just a weapon. It's like a shovel, and a, it's a paddle. It's a, all kind of stuff, you know. It's, you know, they use them for every every kind of thing you could imagine. And over in Nepal, they have like, there's so many different kinds of kukris. And then I've also developed my own theory as to how they actually got them. At some point in time, Alexander the Great was traveling through that area with his armies, conquering the the world or that part of the world. And I think that might, you know, that might have been some influence left there, and they used it to their advantage. So I don't know. That's hyperbole. You know, that's just my idea. I'm not saying that's history, uh, but I, I I was. It's just fascinated me, and I've always tried to make them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. What, cool. I, I will say, I think one of the uh, the first knife I ever actually saw of your work was the mosaic kukri keyhole kukri that you made, and that was blasted across Blade Magazine. Like, was that five or six years ago? Oh, um, uh, it was 2012. Yeah, so, wow, eight years ago. Yeah. Beautiful piece, though. Uh, if Thank any, you. if you, if anybody can look it up. And check it out you definitely gotta go find it because that is if you want to be inspired that is that's probably one of the most amazing knives that i've never seen in person uh, oh, it's thanks, a pretty phenomenal bro. piece yeah i love that, that was one. um 
<laughs> that was a, that was a knife. That was a solving problems every step of the way through. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I got a funny story about that. That was the first knife I ever auctioned off to the highest bidder at Blade Show. And um, I don't know if you guys know Sam Lerquin from Belgium. Yeah. He's a friend of mine. And uh, Sam writes, somebody had bid like 3000 and then Sam bids, I kill and die for Jason. And then he looks at me, he goes, <laughs> I was like, I, I know you would, but you would already do that before this. He goes, ah, oh, you're right. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. <laughs> that That's was a fun awesome. piece. I haven't, I haven't done another one since then. But hmm. I need to. Yeah, it's just all around. It's just a super challenging because it's mosaic Damascus, uh, tile mosaic. You, it's that kukri shape with the raised clip. You got that giant full, like the fuller that you do. The I feel like it's the the Jason Knight signature fuller that you do in the blade. It's a keyhole, which for keyhole. people who don't know is a very challenging process in itself. Yeah. I always um, call it the Picasso lady. You know, it looks like a Picasso lady. Picasso yeah, lady. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I ended up putting the jade on the top and bottom because I don't know why, for some reason I thought I'd put a pin through it. Well, guess what I did? I drilled the hole wrong <laughs> so i drilled a little it was way off i was like oh gosh that's terrible so i went back and milled it out and then i got this jade and i had my friend shelby put 18 karat gold on it so i basically put that in there to cover up some screw up so there's the truth and that i've <laughs> i just didn't know what i was doing but i did it anyway i sandblasted that thing to get all the scratches out <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I, I had a sandblaster with glass beads in it. And I was yeah. trying to like, how am I going to get all this crazy stuff out? And I go, Ooh, so I did it. And I thought I'd invented some new trick. So I, I still do it. But then I talked to, there's a knife maker named Jimmy Fikes and he's pretty significant to knife making history too. And he goes, Oh yeah. I sandblasting the Damascus back in the seventies. I think, of course you did. It's like Schwarzer. <laughs> so, oh yeah, we did that. You know, we did that canister stuff back in 1971 or two or whatever. And it's just funny when you start. Uh, I know I'm going down a rabbit hole, but uh, I'll bring up. I want to bring up Daryl Meyer real quick. I haven't seen him in a while, but uh, Daryl Meyer is the father of modern Damascus. If I had to give someone credit, he uh, he was doing it a long time ago and sharing it, writing peer-reviewed papers for colleges and universities. And uh, he showed me this piece of steel. I'm showing you, there's my hand, you can't see it. But it looked like a holograph. And it was just, I mean, America, you know, it was like simple, like, lines. Can you see my hands? Yeah, I can see it. Okay. I've, I've, I've seen listeners. Listeners. Yeah. Okay. So it was like, lines going this way, lines going this way, and they made little cubes. But it looked yeah. like you could touch it. It looked like you could feel a texture on it, but it was flat. But... I was like, that's crazy. When did you make that? He goes, oh, I, I found this piece in the shop. And um, I think I'm, I wrote, and it was like on the back, it says, it was like 1976 written on there, 1970. Mm. It's like he made it a long time ago. I was like, awesome. And he's someone that we should all know who he is as bladesmiths, as knife makers, uh, because uh, even with, with Steve, you know, he was the guy Steve would go to and say, what about this? Steve Schwarzer would say, what about this? And Daryl would go, well, I don't know. It's possible, you know, but so it's, it's, it's important to us. Wow. It's important to 
know our lineage. Where did these ideas come from? Who shared them? And our, our, it doesn't matter if someone shared them. Um, it matters that they shared them so that other people could grasp a hold of the concepts and and build on that. That's why I like to share. You know, we early on we were talking about. I'm just like I'm telling everybody the secrets. Well, I could tell them the secrets because that doesn't mean they're going to do exactly. You know, that may be a different vision. You know, like when you when someone tells you if I was talking to one of you guys on the phone or you were talking to me and Marco was saying, "Hey, here's how you build this pattern." I'm like, okay. I might not be seeing the same thing he's saying, but I'll go and do a certain way. And he goes, no, that's not what I said, but wow, that's (laughs) how'd you do that? Well, I did what you said. No, I didn't say that. So that happens all the time. And that's one of the great things about uh, what we do, you know, our our art. Hmm. And and it's not just the secret. I mean, showing somebody or, or telling somebody how something is. It doesn't mean that they they can then do it, does it? But they got to put the work in too. That's right. I mean, a good example, yeah. you know, a modern example maybe is like on on YouTube. All these kids they'll see Alex Steele making something something so beautiful. They're like, well, I can do that now. I've seen how it's done. I know how to do that now. But it's not no, you can't because you need to put the work in now. That's what <laughs> that's what a lot of people don't realize. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just knowing how to do it. It's actually putting that work in. Yeah. Can I just make right. one point that's very similar to when when we talk about. Uh, we talked to Jason about what he did before this, and he was working hard to tire place, and he was working mm. hard. I think there's this. Wait, wait there, Jeff. Are you you, you, you you're trying to get behind the curtain now? Do your no, your just, psychological just, baffle that you, you do just, now? Your new you thing. Is, you, is this what this you, is? Don't you think you could calm down for a second? Just let me just finish what I'm saying. I'm not going to do that. I'm saying that we get messages from knife makers saying, "How do I get better at this?" Or "I want to be proficient like this." Or it's it's almost as if these a lot of people want this degree of immediate satisfaction and when you look at guys like Jason who he had a history before he's making knives of working hard with his hands a lot of times you'll find that the guys who the people anybody who have this you know talent and the success also have a long background of being able to be satisfied with working hard and being uh finding that satisfaction in a hard day's work and you know being you know being having adversity in front of you it's not you easy. Know, it's not just yeah, watching yeah, the movie and then you get it. I like to use the analogy um, of playing a musical instrument. Um, when we are younger, we're kids, and we pick up a guitar and we're cram on it like, oh, you know, especially like guitar. You're like, I want to be in a rock band. I want to be a rock star, you know. And you play that guitar every day every night every day every night and you're working like a mad dog at it and then you're just it's beginning to flow from you you, you know it's, it's coming out it's easy now it's like but it wasn't easy it was hard to get there and it, and it happens and you're doing it that person may be well known you know they, they may be an eric clapton or ingve Maelstein or any of these you know famous guitarists um or they may just be someone who enjoys it or maybe the guy that you've seen in knife making goes, well, I've been making knives for 30 years. And my answer to that is, well, if you make a knife a year for 30 years, that still only equals 30 knives. (laughs) (laughs) And the same goes for playing music. You've been playing music for 30 years and you play it once a year. You're probably not going to be that good. Even though you have 30 years experience, it's about hours and time and getting dirty. Um, 
and it's it's clean dirt. You know, what I mean, it's it's good, the good dirt. And you do it, and you learn it, and you get better, and you make mistakes, and you don't keep making those mistakes, and you learn real quick. It's kind of funny. I still do some of the same things that I used to do, and I'm like, I can't believe I just did a two inch grind mark and a knife. I can't believe I did that. That's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> but it but it happens, and uh, you have to be able to overcome it and fix it, and, and you know, fixing problems. Like I was saying about, you know, we talked about that cookery real quick. That was an exercise and just fixing problems. Really, uh, I I kind of knew where I was going with it, but I I kept not getting what I wanted, so I changed the direction. I changed the direction. I changed the direction, and that's one thing that I think has helped me become a versatile maker. Uh, it's like sometimes people say, "Well, I don't do what you do, all that beating and bam," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I know." I'm not being a jerk, but like, it's not what I, that's not all that I do. You know, we all make knives different ways, but sometimes when I use a five axis mill and a three axis mill and I have someone else use those things for me and I tell them what to do and I tell them what to make and I forge and I grind and I, you know, all that stuff I'm, I'm experiencing now in knife making, not just making my own knives, but having my knives manufactured. And that is another learning curve altogether that thing just that don't just happen that's hard yeah i, I want to know more about that that sort of the whole idea of becoming a manufacturer of having sort of a brand out there uh, but let's just hear from one of our sponsors for just a second combat abrasives make the world's best abrasive belts for knife makers available in any size and at unbelievable prices Go take a look at CombatAbrasives.com and get 15% off with the promo code KNIFETALK15. Do it now. Do it, Do it now. now. 15% <laughs> off with Combat Abrasives. So you were just mentioning about um, getting other people on board and they're making your designs and making it almost like a production facility. Um, and th- that's almost the sort of way that I make knives because, I mean... Th- the three of us, myself, Jeff, and Morocco, we make very different knives. Um, Morocco makes these these one-off pieces, which are which are beautiful. Take a long time to make, and then they are stunning. Um, and and Jeff does these great knives, but more more sort of quantity and about bringing value to chefs, that kind of thing. And mine, I mean, my knives are more a case of um, big big batches. So I'll do sort of table knives for restaurants, like two hundred of them, and that kind of thing. So it's more of a sort of production. Wow, that's cool. And it, it's interesting to, to hear you say that that that's what that's what you're 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 doing as well now, getting other people in and making your designs. And can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I'll start off by telling why, and um, it, we talked a lot about why, but specifically, you know, when when I start asking questions, I always not want to know why. What and how is very important, but the why is the target for me. So as a, as a knife maker, I've been doing this for 20 years. It, it is, uh, it's, this has been my sole source of income. I didn't have, you know, I'm not retired from something. I didn't have some other ball game going on somewhere. You know, it's, this is it. It's me and my wife. We're just trying to hack it out of nothing to make it work. And, uh, I've had other families. I've taken, I've taken care of my grandmother. I've taken care of my sister. Uh, taking care of an, another estate that didn't even belong to me, <laughs> but this crazy stuff that I was just trying to handle and hustle and deal with it all the time. Uh, 
while trying to be a professional knife maker. And so it's been feast and famine and feast and famine. And um, um, I realize uh, through my friends, uh, Daniel Winkler is a, a great friend of mine. I've known him and Karen since I was like 15. And they took their knife making and they built it into a manufacturing business where they're manufacturing knives and they're still handmade knives. That's one of the cool things about what they're doing. Yeah. They're able to produce them in a quantity that people can actually get them in their hands. Now, one of the problems that I think all, all of us have, um, we can only make so many. And so you're going to always max out on your income. You know, you're going to, you're going to max that out. And I don't have insurance. I don't, I don't, you know, there's a lot of things I don't have a, that safety net default to, and none of us really do, honestly. It's an illusion. Yeah. I mean, having insurance is an illusion, okay? It's not, it's like, it's there, but it's not a thing you count on. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, so I want to make things better for my family and myself. And I need to go in different directions. I need multifaceted things that I, you have to polish these facets to make them work. So getting knives made is one thing. Uh, my first experience with this was I would do a run of 50. And I'm like, man, that was hard. I do 50 knives or I do 50 knives. And I learned how to do this because, uh, you know, sometimes knife making, no one's buying. So you have to make something different. So I learned how to make something different. I'd be like, well, I, I can't make a $1,000 knife, but I can make $1,000 knives or I can make $1,500 knives. And that made perfect sense to me. That was very logical. So I did that. When I... Um, I say when I came back home, I was, you know, I did this History Channel show. I wasn't making knives. I was wandering around and doofing off and kind of ruining my life at the time. Uh, and when I got myself back together, moved to South Carolina. That's where I lived in South Carolina. We sold that place, moved to Tennessee. I began working with Daniel Winkler in, at Winkler Knives 2. And they asked me to come on board and do some designs and work with them and do some consulting. So I did, and it was great. And so we developed the line, and I got to see the entire process of how they go from concept to prototype to finish knife. And that was great to see the efficiency. You know, the efficiency is what's important, like boom, boom, boom. boom. Yeah. Super simple. Yeah. And they broke it down into a thing where they could train people. They could come in, train you how to be a knife maker. Um, usually people who could play guitar can grind knives. It's just something I found. <laughs> And um, so they've got water jet and CNC machine, and they got a burger grinder now. They've got a whole other facility, which is cool to see. And um, I, I still work with them. They still do some of my knives. I'm not I'm not in their building anymore. I'm kind of doing my own thing with uh, AJ Singh. And if you guys ever go to Blade Show, you know AJ. He's a tall, dark, and handsome. Um, he's a, a Canadian mounted police. But I think you probably know who AJ is. Tactical Elements. We developed a brand called Night Elements, which really trying to get stuff made, and that is the hard part: <laughs> the consistency. So we have things made in Italy by Fox. We have things made in Chattanooga by RMJ. We co-brand with them. But what we're doing is we're paying to have the products made, the knives made, and then we're selling them through our Tactical. I mean, our Night Elements brand. And uh, we're having some things made in Tennessee and some things made in Alabama. So eventually, once this becomes a consistency, I'll try to bring it all in-house. But right now, I look at it like this. 
It's not in-house, and that building doesn't belong to me, but I'm contracting with the makers to make. So for the time, it's like leasing in a way. Uh, so yeah, yeah. they're they're doing the contract. They're putting our logo on it. Uh, they're maybe made in Italy or whatever they put. You know, it's fine with me. Uh, everybody knows it's not my custom-made knife, but it's a way for people to get a knife in their hand. They can't afford a a fifteen hundred dollar knife, or maybe not even a five hundred dollar knife, but they can afford that yeah. one, and they can get it, and it makes makes me happy, makes them happy. But man, it takes it it takes some time to build that to make it where it's at a a level where it's it's actually profitable enough so that it can start to return to make money. So right now we're two years in, and we're at the stages of still trying to line up people to make. And make sure it's paying for itself. So it's really hard. <laughs> it's really, it's yeah. just so much easier for me to go in the shop and go, dun, 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 making a knife, blah, 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 boom, for sale. All right, sold. All right, great. Make another knife. But I'm, you know, I'm getting older, and we're going to get older, and we're going to get to a place where you know, maybe one day we're, we're not able to do it, or maybe we don't feel like doing it every day. You know, because I don't feel like going out there every day, but I got to. So I'm just trying yeah. to make a way for myself. And my family, so that I can have some other backup besides, you know, this. Yeah. No, I think it's commendable. I think, you know, most knife makers they are sort of self-employed. They're their own boss, and you need to wear this many hats. You need to, you know, you need to be in charge of all the financials. You need to make sure all the, you know, you've got all the supplies in. You know, you need to, you need to be an all-round business person. It's not just a case of somebody who just works with their hands all the time. It, it takes a lot, a lot of skills to be to be your own boss and somebody who works for yourself and and just to make it happen. The hardest part is is if you're used to making your knife yourself and you know all the different ins and outs and you're not depending on someone. And then to release that dependency, and now all of a sudden there are other people involved, and maybe things don't go the way you want it to go. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to be able to trust other people because a lot of times other people who are involved with what you're doing let you down. Oh, man. <laughs> Why did you do that? That's the stupidest looking grind I've ever seen. Why would you grind it from there? You got, clearly, I make the grind to start there for a reason. Why are you doing that? I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, we hit a note. We hit a note. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it's uh, Compromise. I wouldn't have any other job. Honestly, I, there's nothing else I want to do. I love doing this job. Uh, I I do get asked, "Why don't you go back on Fortune Fire?" I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't enjoy uh, doing uh, a television game show. I'm not slamming it. It's just what it is. It's a TV game show. Uh, I do enjoy that a thing like that inspires people to make, and it, and it gets people out there. They're like, hey, man, there's people doing this. This is crazy. So those are great things about something like that. But I like doing my YouTube. I like doing podcasts with people. That's fun. You know, we're, we, we're talking about our art. We're sharing it with people. We're getting people involved. We're getting them interested. We get to share ideas with each other. And that's the reality of it, you know. So – uh, that's it's fun when we can coordinate and collaborate sometimes. Can I? Yeah, and it's your own creativity. You haven't got somebody in a suit telling you, well, maybe if you do things that way, it's like, well, this, this is my idea, this is my thing. I get it, I get it. Right, Jeff, this is your bet. Sam, what would you do? 
we got a problem. <laughs> we got a real problem because <laughs> I didn't really prepare for this, but I do have some questions for for Jason. Uh, well, one real quick question is is after what you said is you know, one of the things we get a lot of, especially other knife makers, say that everybody who doesn't know us always asks us if we've been on Forge and Fire. And I, I do wonder if anyone <laughs> who doesn't watch the show or doesn't know your history, has anyone asked you if you've been on Forge and Fire or, you know what you should do, Jason? You should be on Forge and Fire. Anyone ever ask you that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you ever seen that show? I was like, oh, I've seen it live a couple times. And you're like, man, you should go on that show. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really want that. That's funny. That's funny. So one question I have uh, that, you know, uh, what do you think is the most overlooked when start that young knife makers make or young bladesmiths makes? What's overlooked when starting on the road to being a bladesmith? Mm, for the maker, what's overlooked is the necessity for uh, good tools and that word afford. And uh, or ex when I hear afford and expensive, these are two very uh, yep. not well defined things by our current culture. So what's expensive is let's take this into account. A liter of water from certain companies costs three to four dollars. A gallon of gasoline costs a dollar and eighty cents. Uh, I want to live where you live. So water is expensive. A brand new truck that every i mean i'm telling you any a car people buy brand new cars all the time and they're ridiculously expensive you know that's expensive but a good grinder like you want to get a grinder from travis words or you want to get a broadback or a, a one from chris williams those are not expensive and here's how i can show you they're not expensive the grinder costs let's say it's three grand and you get into this and you got your grinder and now you're doing it and you realize a year later you just hate it and it ain't for you so you can sell your grinder for twenty nine hundred dollars and ninety nine cents so it costs <laughs> you one penny so that means it wasn't expensive it's a commodity not a liability and i think that's one of the things that new makers get confused about instantly uh like when i well i can't afford that i'm gonna get me that old kalamazoo grinder nothing against those but that knife has, I mean, that grinder has almost, it doesn't have much. Um, you're not going to sell it for what you paid for. You're not going to get your monies, but you're going to have to give it to somebody else, which is good. I've given grinders away all the time. And I'm not picking on them. I'm just using it as an example, you know. Um, so there's a, there's a place where we can stay in this state of mind where I can't afford, I can't afford. Um, funny story is... When I moved to Tennessee, I sold my house, bought a new house, working for, uh, working with the Winklers, had no shop. And when I left working with the Winklers, I had no money and no shop and no tools. <laughs> so I sold my press, my power hammer. I had, uh, I had my grinder and that's all I had. So I set up a thing and I, in my garage and I was just doing some grinding in the garage. But then I had acquired some kind of fancy guns, I guess you could say. So I sold them all, bought a hammer, didn't have anywhere to put the power hammer, and I just I built it again in what I like to call is the deconstruct, not the ideal. So I had a deconstructed idea of my shop again, so I, I supplied it with a grinder and a power hammer. 
and an air compressor and a welding table and build it up and build it up and build it up over time. So mm. it's, it's not hard if you really want to do it. You have to decide what's important. Is it important to drink a $5 mocha choco latte or whatever the hell it is every day? <laughs> and you'll do it twice a day. Like, I mean, just break it down. Two lattes a day and um, three beers at the pub. You know, that's 25 bucks. 25 bucks a day for 10 days. I mean, the math starts to get real simple on you real fast. Mm. So if you want to do it, you will do it. And you will not make an excuse and you will not say, well, I can't afford that. Hmm. And we're always being asked about equipment. You know, what should I get first as a new maker and so on? And, and you're right. It, it, it doesn't have to be expensive, but it needs to be value for money yeah. for you so you can make that money back. Um, and we try to help. We try to help as a podcast. So we, we mentioned Broadback um, Grinders. We've got a great deal with them. So they make this fantastic grinder. Um, Jeff uses his daily. It's, it's, his, it's his main grinder. Amazing 2x72, very versatile, really intuitive, lots of different tool arms, that kind of thing, long platens. And you can get 10% off by using Knife Talk 10. So if you go to broadbackironwork.com and put in the promo code Knife Talk 10, you'll also get 10% off. So when we're talking inexpensive, this is super inexpensive. Yeah. Go take a look, broadbackironwork.com. You know what I made him do for mine? What was that? <laughs> Curtis got his, and it was all in parts. I was like, I want one, but uh, I'm not putting it together. <laughs> <laughs> like a total diva. So I did. I was like, I want it painted purple, and I wanted to have Prince's logo on it. And they, I told them that for real, but they didn't do it. But they came and they took a class with me, so we kind of traded. So I was like, you bring me a grinder, and uh, we'll do a class. So we made, we made integral chef's knives. So Ryan made a carbon steel one, and Vince made... I love Vince's accent. I'm not going to try to copy it, but he made one with like nickel Damascus. So we had fun. We had a good time. It was a good time. They're good but dudes. Good dudes. They're yeah. good dudes. And one of the things about Broadback that I like is the fact that you can get a hold of them and they'll answer any question you have. They're knife makers making grinders for knife makers and they're yeah. constantly looking to be helpful. So I'm I'm super pumped that they're on board and I, and when I when he called me and told when Vince told me that he was going down with you and I know that he's got a knife for for uh, Kurt and it's just it's a it's a really good American company that they're really in it for the long haul. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I like what I, I'm honest with them too. I had a conversation with them yesterday about some stuff because I want them to be what they want to be. You know, you want to if you're serious, you want to. You want to be that, then I grind knives all the time, and I'm happy to help. We have another unique thing that happens in our shop. See, a grinder in my shop is going to get the mm, – it's going to get – there's me and Tristan and Tiger Lily, and then we do we do two classes a month in our – we have a, we actually have a, a class. My wife set up a school, so we have people come from all over the world, and they take – we you know, we have classes, so twice a month. Uh, not every month, but starting back in September, we do classes, and everybody uses these grinders. Boom, boom, boom! They're getting banged on and and abused all the time. Mm. So it's a testament to grinders when they can hold it through that punishment, because that's what it is. <laughs> so, oh yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna use. Their, they just came out with uh, an integral attachment, so they're gonna send me one and. 
pretty sure I'll be featuring it in Forged Saga Episode 3. Nice. Episode III. Actually, I have a follow-up to Jeff's question that he asked earlier about uh, about beginning knife makers. Um, you said you didn't really consider yourself a, a knife maker or I guess, I don't know, a professional knife maker until 2001. What was kind of, what, 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 I guess, what was the defining moment for you? What was the thing between um, you being a hobbyist, question. messing around, and then being very serious? That's a good one. Well, oh, that's funny. Uh, well, it's funny to me because it's like the hard answer. I was like, so I don't want to do this job anymore. I'm just going to make knives. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of it, but it was it was like the ability to make something that I considered a professional quality, so the mm -hmm. the knife like I could people would see the knife and they'd be like, "Wow, you know like so one of the first knives I finished when I got back from the school I did I don't really know it's one of those useless size knives that me and Adam DeRoche usually call a frog skinner or a poverty <laughs> fighter, and they're like what's or, yeah, it's for fighting my poverty. It's a fighter, but that's what it's for fighting, <laughs> poverty. But I did a hamon on it, and it had, like, Spanish knots, and I did guard, you know, I did plate guards with feral, and I had some really pretty wood, actually, that I found out in the backyard. It was a black cherry burl. And that was, like, the first knife that I thought was like, man, this is great. And I actually won Best New Maker at Blade Show West with that knife. Oh, but nice. that was, um, and looking at it now, I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> but... It was, it was something I knew that I can build on. I know, I know that I can build on this now, and um, I forged every day. I forged every day, and I and I tried to develop as fast as I could. I wanted to add those subtleties in for style because it was important. But I also, you know, I made a lot of hunting knives because I knew I knew how that worked. I, you know, I spent my time in the woods. But I could sell those. That was easy to sell. But people who make hunting knives that have never cleaned a deer, you gotta, you gotta get a, you gotta copy somebody's work, which is perfect. But there's a way to do it. There's a way for it. Sometimes people bring me a. Let me try to find a knife I can show you. I got a bunch of them. They bring me a knife. It's like a big. It's just. I know I got a knife here. This is ridiculous. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Get it? It's in the thing. But they'll make a knife with a 10-inch blade and go, oh, yeah, that's my hunting knife. And I'm like, oh, for orc hunting. <laughs> no, for deer hunting. I was like, for troll hunting. No, it, it's a hunting knife for hunting deer. For pig hunting. Pig hunting. That'll work for pig hunting. So if you use a dog and pig for a big, a big knife, it works great. Yeah, that's right. But you just have to figure out which one it is. But that's also could be said about uh, knife makers who get in, involved in culinary knives because a lot of times guys <laughs> who get into culinary knives, they don't know how to cook. And, and it's cook. like and, – and, and Is this is this a dig at me for, for losing on these chef competitions we've done for the last really. few weeks? Not really. No. Not really. But, I mean, if you want to go there, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that – Because my grilled cheese and my pizza were, were far better than yours, let's face it. Anyway, I'm just saying that one of the, young, the things that a lot of young makers do, and I'm sure Jason can attest to this, is they think that they know – and then without the practical experience based on – because I know that 
you know uh, what you're saying a lot of guys you know even hunters use these uh you know uh disposable you know like exacto knives for, yeah. for skinning gear so i think that there is this idea that oh i know how to make the knife i know how to heat treat i know how to put the handle on but they don't have these the experience to understand what is necessary in order to get the knife the way they want it yeah the are. thing I tell them is just go prep food. You know, my wife yeah. loves to cook, and uh, oftentimes I like to I like to cut up everything. So I'm I'm totally happy doing the cutting up stuff. Uh, hmm. But yeah, I think it's weird, especially you know when someone says, "Well, let me show you the chef's knife I made." I was like, "You mean chopper? You mean tree <laughs> trimming knife? No, it's a chef's knife." I'm like, "No, it's a. It looks like a. It's a gaucho. I don't know." His geometries are, you know, critical. But, yeah, it's like that, I think, too. There's a lot of that. And that's kind of where our if, – if we – simple rule. If you care, I care. This is a principle that my friend John Sullivan taught me. He's marketing genius and uh, started a lot of businesses and stuff. But we used to brainstorm together. And, and this is what this means. I always care. And I have to know that the other person does, too. So I say, if you care, I care. You can you can help or you can not because I'm sure you you've all probably seen some a new maker bring a knife to you that's a you know chef's knife go here's my chef's knife and this works great they're you know they're asking they're saying the wrong things and they're not asking a question saying this works great what do you think I don't see how it could and hand it back or I really want to improve this what do I need to do and it's like well go cut up stuff you know go use it and see if that works go. Go go make it thin enough so that when you're cutting onions, then they're not making you cry. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, Jeff? All yeah. the time. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, we, we've had, like I said, a million and one. We could be here for hours. And I'm, I'm very conscious that we've, we've been speaking nearly two hours now. We're very grateful for your time. So... Jeff and Mareko, if you want to look down the list and find one more question each, I'm just going to take, take a minute to tell everybody about the uh, the sandpaper that we use. <laughs> so uh, myself, Mareko and Jeff, we're all big fans of Rhino Wet Sandpaper. It's the best in the business. It's quick. And if it's quick, it saves you money. So don't waste your time on anything else. Use Rhino Wet for any hand sanding that you have to do. You can get that at Texas Farrier Supply. As, as well as lots of other stuff that they do. They do lots of stuff for, for you know, knife makers, bladesmiths, and, and you know, iron workers, you know, farriers, everything. TexasFarriersSupply.com. Make sure you use the promo code KNIFETALK10, and you'll get 10% off. And that includes your RhinoWet, your Indasa RhinoWet. So make sure you do that. TexasFarriersSupply.com. And let's just finish with just two more questions. Let's start with Morocco. What, what have you got? I got my own question, actually. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, so Jason, you're inspired by stuff all the time. You're seeing stuff all the time. And so I'm curious, what is a trend or some sort of stylization or something you've seen recently that has really got your kind of your gears turning in your head, making you think, ooh, I like that. And this makes me want to put my own twist on it in your in my own way what is what is what is something that you've seen recently that makes you feel that way um probably finishes mm -hmm. uh that's that's you know different finishes really fascinate me so when i see like like paint on a car or a cerakote or a tumbled finish or 
all these different little variations of finish uh, that can be put on something and which one is appropriate for a knife, which one's durable enough for a knife and which one's food safe for a knife. So finishes are probably one of the things that I'm, I'm really most fascinated by lately. And that also is style. I mean, really, you, you know, forever was mirror finished knives. There's a reason that it was made by those knives were made by guys who grew up with cars that had chrome on them. And, and that's a fact. <laughs> I mean, that's the shiny mirror polish and it's beautiful. It's still in it. And it comes and goes in popularity, you know. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. That's that's really the thing I'm trying to figure out how to do different finishes, and I imagine some textures also. Uh, but oh man, it's difficult to to pull off. You know, like some you know like chatoyance in a Damascus, like when you can see it go, it looks like it's sure. this deep, but it's not, and it's smooth. So those are those are tricky. And fascinating, and it's something that I'm always playing with in my mind. Quick question. So on, a, on a similar note. Sorry, go sorry, ahead. Jeff, just a sec. On, on a similar note, is, is there a knife style that you, you haven't got around to yet simply because you think you're not ready for it? Is, is, there, is, there, is there one sort of holy grail that you're thinking, one day I'm going to get to that? You haven't quite got that. That's yet. a good question, too. Um, I... Thank you. Thank you. Jim. I haven't made a lock blade. I haven't made a lock back blade. And the one that comes to mind is kind of phantasmagorical. It was a Larry Fagan. Uh, it was like a goblin folder, but it was a, it was like something out of Lord of the Rings. It was huge, but it was like, you know, and that, the, the spur looking lock on the back. Like, I like that. I think that's cool. Um, I make a lot of folders people don't really know about, but my folders tend to be prototypes that I put in production. And Clint Watts has pretty much all the handmade folders I've made because I give them to him, and uh, they're they're not to be seen <laughs> by others. I made one <laughs> folder with Wade Coulter, and um, I don't know if y'all know Wade, but Wade Wade's from Montana. He's 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 a genius, and I love him, and uh, um. But uh, he made crazy stuff. But I made one folder with him, and it might have been the most miserable knife-making class I ever took. But it was fun because I got to hang out with him. But it was really like, I don't even know what we're doing. I have no idea. But I've simplified things since then and learned some basic principles to how to do it. But, yeah, that lockback is like one of those I really have a way that I'm imagining to do, but just haven't done it yet. Mm. I mean, there's more, of course. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Super. Super. Jeffrey, I think final I, question I have for you. A simple question and a final question. The simple question is based on finishes, and we get this a lot. Is gun bluing safe for culinary knives? Is it a safe finish that people can use for culinary knives? Uh, yes and no, and I'll elaborate on that. Um, if you just put it on and wipe it off, no, it's not. <laughs> If you put it on and you wash the hell out of it and you you basically have to steel wool it with fine steel wool until you've got every, you know, because steel is porous in a way. And you want to get all of that out, all of that out until it doesn't smell anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So when that smell is gone, then and you wash it with hot soapy water and you do a test run, you cut something, none of that's coming off anywhere, then it's safe. And that's something that I will do on culinary knives. I will use a type of, of bluing on there uh, 
one of the keys for me is I generally will let it rust. So I'll put it on. I'll let it get rusty. Like it looks like, oh, damn, it's that's ruined. In the, that's in the course. That's in the course. Make them oh, buy, make them buy oh, the course. Make them buy the video, Jason. Make them buy the video. Okay, well, buy my video for $599.99, <laughs> and I'll tell you how to do it. No. Uh, Go to nightforgestudio.com, promo code FORGE1450. Get that new episode of Forge by Jason Knight, and then he'll tell you all about that finish. Yep. And, or you can follow me on Instagram, and there's a click the link on there. Or you could go to my YouTube channel, which is just Jason Knight, and we have links on there too, and we're always having fun. But, yeah, you just got to really wash the heck out of it um, until it'll it'll get – it'll actually look better and better. You know, the idea is to get an oxide finish on there. Um, I did come up with a, another one. I figured out a couple new ones that uh, also, you know, involve – caustic agents to rust the steel or oxidize the steel but they don't have that same weird smell that gun blue has so i'll be sharing those in forged three All right, there you go. Woo! Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> so i'll be sharing that in that series when i do it cool cool jeff did, sorry, did i you did have, have one question, final jeff? question if you were judging the journeyman smith test and one of the five knives submitted were stock removal, were made from stock removal, not forged. Could you tell? Nope. Okay, there you go. No, so has, do you think anyone has ever submitted stock removal knives to be tested <laughs> for the final test? Well, no, Jeff, actually. Let me elaborate. <laughs> Have you ever seen how they make these? I got in so much trouble for saying this one time. <laughs> Sweet. Everybody is making a forged knife, and I'll tell you why. Um, you're, you're Niagara Specialty Metals, that's up in New York. You ever been there? No. Really cool place. So they get an ingot of CPM 154CM. You know what they do to it? Go ahead. They heat it up to forging temperature, and they roll it down into the dimensions that you need. <laughs> And that process is actually called forging. Sorry, I did tell everybody just now that all the stainless is forged. All the carbon steel is forged. Whether you get it and ruin it with a hammer or not, it's still forged. <laughs> <laughs> that is the top Illuminati secret of the day. <laughs> It's official. I, I am a yeah, bladesmith, not just a knife maker. Yeah. It's official. That, Marco, you ever heard that before? I have heard that. That's pretty funny. It's but I did that. that. I did that talk, and I was like showing, like, see this piece of steel? Oh, yeah. How would they get this down in the size? Oh, they'd have to forge it. I was like, yeah. And what is this process called? Forging. Well, that's stainless, guys. And I remember uh, Jim Batson was sitting on the front row, and he was going, mm -hmm. and another guy was going, no, no. No, <laughs> no I was just like, I'm not trying to break anybody's bubble, but, uh, you know, the, the steel that we get is beautiful. And some of the problems that we have is we'll get it and grind it to ruin or forge it to ruin. And that's one of the whole reasons that I wanted to come up with the series that I have. I want people to enjoy the process and not have to fight with it. But I also, you know, I don't encourage you to sell clunky ass knives that you're give them away. Give all those knives away. And when you get to a place where you feel like this is a knife good enough to sell, great, sell it. Then you'll have enough money to cover your gas money or something. But um, 
you know, remember, if you win the lottery, just keep making the knives until the money runs out. <laughs> That's a perfect way to end the show. End the show. So... Remind people again where they they can purchase your courses. Um, so that's online. Is that at nightforgestudio.com? Nightforgestudio.com. And you could go to forgedbynight.com. Or you could follow me on my Instagram, which is just Jason Knight Knives. And there's links in there. And, uh, try to engage. Literally, if you go on there and you ask your question, I'm trying to engage. You know, So uh, I'm, I'm watching it, but there's like four other people that handle my social media too. So we just, I want to be as helpful as possible. And as someone who's watched the whole course, it is definitely worth it, especially now that it's discounted at for $50. If you put a promo code forged, the number one, four, and then the number 50. Yeah, I, I was very impressed by all of it. I picked up a ton. I'm actually going to, I actually ordered some crew forge V and I'm going to do my version not my version i'm going to do i'm going to see if i can i learn something from your class so i'm really looking forward cool. to that really excited cool cool man thank you i appreciate it oh the other thing is too is any any thoughts you want to share with me about making it better is always appreciated too you know so that's that's a thing that i'm very open to i'm very open to criticism um and especially well actually only from makers <laughs> i don't give a damn about what you have to say if you haven't made a knife <laughs> if you don't make knives or you haven't made a knife then i don't care what you have to say critique wise but if you do make knives i'm very interested in critiques and improvements because that's how you, you know i, I want to make it better i want to make it better or clearer or more direct or whatever you know because i want it to be fun you know but that's what i do i'm hoping there's going to be a blooper episode because I Ooh, got we feel- got a lot of that, man. We got so much B-roll of all this nonsense. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I can't okay. believe they they let you sneak sneak in. You were making some reference to saying something was like having a bullfrog with tits, and I was like, ah, so they let that one slide. Oh right my in. grandma used to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so now, it used just- to be a boar hog. She would say that's as useless as a boar hog with tits. Well, boar hog is yeah. You know, so, but she she is older. She had Alzheimer's. And uh, me and my wife took care of her, and she'd be like, "Well, that's just as useless as tits on a bullfrog." <laughs> I was just like, "That's funny. That's even more funny because I had no idea." <laughs> you know, that's the title for this week's show: <laughs> "Tits on a Bullfrog." As useless as tits on a bullfrog. <laughs> I don't think we'll be getting any Star- Starbucks sponsors in this episode. Tits on a bullfrog. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're, you're a true gentleman, and I know you, you put so much, you know, resources into helping people, and you know, just making this whole crazy thing of knife making accessible to more and more people. So, thank you so much for that, and for giving us your time this morning. Hey, thank you, guys. Really I appreciate it. it. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.